We're about to explore the concepts outlined in a new book called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. It is the contention of the author of this book, Jenny C. Stevens, that uh, the leadership that uh, is in place right now, uh, especially in this country and probably in most parts of the world, is uh, too much dominated by white males. And, uh, and because of that, many of the perspectives are perhaps limited. And, uh, and also the understanding of the impact of, of some of these problems uh, are somewhat limited. And that if we had a more diverse leadership when it comes to these kind of issues, we would have a, a wider ranging and more comprehensive understanding about what is going on and about what needs to be done. Uh, Jenny Stevens explores this uh, thoroughly in this new book, which is published by Island Press. Uh, she is a professor and the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern uh, University. And uh, she is a hardworking social justice uh, advocate and, uh, and researcher when it comes to sustainability science. Again, her new book is titled Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. Uh, Jenny C. Stevens, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much, Greg. Great to be able to have this conversation with you. So you uh, end the preface of your book by saying that you were inspired to write this book because of having gained uh, a distinct sense of optimism. Uh, that might come as a surprise to some people. It seems like a lot of books uh, that are about this topic do not necessarily uh, find themselves generated from optimism. Uh, but uh, you are feeling optimistic about some things. Uh, and, and even as, around some of the concerns which you directly address in your book. Tell us about that, that optimism. Yeah, so we are in a very hard time right now where all of these interconnected crises with the pandemic, with the climate crisis, with economic crisis, um, all, and the racial, structural racism crisis, all coming together and being revealed in ways that um, is really hard, and a lot of people are suffering, and it's a hard time. But I have optimism, and the book talks about really elevates the potential and what's happening with new emerging leaders, particularly younger leaders and women and people of color who've been historically excluded from leadership spaces are um, – being heard more clearly and being able to contribute. And when this is ha with this um, shift, um, we are seeing that people um, bring different perspectives and they bring uh, different life experiences, different perceptions of risk, and that informs different priorities and, 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 a, and a sense of connection among all of these challenges. So what, when I talk about the optimism, what I'm talking about is right now um, we are seeing um, social movements and advocates build, co building coalitions among these different issues and calling for larger societal change. And um, that's really what, what we need because business as usual has not been working for so many people. Um, and being able to center social justice at the core of all of our policies and all of our processes is, is essential. Hmm. Um, I, I want to make sure that I give you a chance to 
touch on something you mentioned in the book that maybe isn't precisely on the target, and yet it's really closely related, and that is the fact that you not only see a problem with uh, a lack of diversity when it comes to leadership in these various movements, but also there is also going on something which you call climate isolationism. Explain what climate isolationism is and why it is a problem in your mind, and also uh, what the connections might be with this lack of diversity uh, in, in these various movements. Is, is that isolationism partly due to this lack of diversity? Yeah, so I've been working on climate and energy uh, for my whole career, so a couple decades now. And um, what I've become more and more aware of is, and why we've been so ineffective at addressing um, the challenges of climate change, is this kind of narrow technocratic lens um, thinking about science and technology and thinking about investing in technological innovations, but thinking about climate as like a problem that's separate from everything else. And really, it's integrated and connected with everything from our economic system, our jobs, our health, our housing, our transportation, everything is impacted by the climate. So um, we really, by, by focusing too much on technologies and by focusing too much on kind of um, this technocratic focus on decarbonization and greenhouse gas emission reductions, and it's not a very um, uh, inclusive way to elevate a problem or, or the solutions to it because it, it really has excluded a lot of people and it doesn't connect with what people wake up every day worrying about. Um, so we've also missed opportunities for connecting climate to everything else, um, and therefore we've also missed opportunities to um, think about the social change and the social justice issues that we can, as we respond to the climate crisis, we can simultaneously be investing in our communities and um, providing a better future for everybody um, in a more prosperous and sustainable future. Hmm. We're speaking with Jenny C. Stevens about her book, Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. So explain to us the current state of affairs in terms of how serious the problem of lack of diversity is. I don't mean how serious are the, are the consequences of that, but just how non-diverse is the leadership uh, when it comes to areas of concern like climate and energy? Well, from my own experience, um, you know, being a woman working in the energy space and, and many of the climate experts that I've been trained by, um, you know, are... Have, have a kind of scientific uh, lens and background. And as we know, science and engineering is, is very much uh, dominated by, by men. And um, there's been, you know, efforts. Not everybody has access to uh, scientific and education. And so we, I think it's a, it's a, it's a problem. 
And um, it also um, really speaks to the limits of how we've been thinking about the problems. And I introduce in, and, and discuss in the book this idea of energy democracy, which is really thinking about beyond the technological substitution as we move away from fossil fuels to a renewable-based future, we have the possibilities to invest in kind of regionally appropriate mix of renewable-based energy, not just wind and solar, but if you, for communities on the coast, you could also have wave and tidal energy um, or an offshore wind. Inland, you could have geothermal energy as well as uh, wind and solar at multiple different scales, including community and locally owned and managed and controlled energy. So, um, what we want to be thinking about is, is not just the demographics of the people involved, but also the geography and the space and um, the uh, co configurations of our energy systems. And one of the things that's really um, critical to understand that isn't always clear to people is that the worsening climate crisis and the um, the slow pace of kind of our transformation away from fossil fuels to a renew renewable-based future has really been intricately connected to economic injustice and the widening income and wealth gap. Um, if you think about the top 1%, many of them are polluter elites. Um, some people are referring to them in terms of shareholders, fossil fuel interests, um, executives who are making a lot of money off of uh, the current fossil fuel-based system, and they actually have been, for decades been strategically investing to resist any changes in that and want, through multiple strategies, including a misinformation campaign to deny climate science and the fact that burning fossil fuels has all kinds of negative um, impacts for all of us, uh, but also investing in undermine public tr undermining public trust in government and worker protections and health protections and really minimizing worker rights. And there's been a shift in corporate culture towards shareholder priorities rather than worker priorities. And, and this is, um, you know, we don't always think about this economic injustice as related to the climate crisis, but it really is uh, because um, there's been a very intentional effort to um, resist the changes that we need and resist the kinds of investments in our communities that we need. Hmm. And it's interesting that you coined the right or just now refer to the term of, of resistance. And uh, you talk at one point in your book about resistance in the other direction uh, in terms of of resisting uh, those who would try to keep the status quo as unchanged as possible. I mean, who, who do not welcome uh, these kind of transformative changes. And uh, you, you say at one point, resistance is not a moderate position. Explain what you're saying there. Yeah, so one of the things that we've, I've been realizing more and more is that when we are complacent and just kind of do business as usual and don't acknowledge um, how what we're doing is actually exacerbating inequities or contributing to um, increasing the racial disparities and other inequities in our society, we are actually contributing to it. So I think one of the, the important things is that we all need to be um, considering 
our, you know, our own uh, contributions, but more importantly, how the systems that we all contribute to and our practices and our, the way we organize ourselves and our society is actually, um, you know, exacerbating inequities and um, disparities. So the, the opportunity really is for all of us um, to um, – we have to be intentional about integrating anti-racist and feminist principles into everything we're doing. And that's where, when I talk about diversifying power and the need for anti-racist feminist leadership, it's not only um, uh, the representation and the actual uh, backgrounds that people bring, but people, uh, men and women and people of all religions and race and races and cultures can embrace anti-racist feminist principles. And they real, what that really means is a people's first approach. What do people need? What do communities need? Um, and how are we investing to make sure that people have access to the basic things that everybody needs. And um, we've, we've, we've really moved away from that in the United States in particular, in part because of these, uh, the powerful concentration of wealth and power um, of the polluter elite. One of the most significant elements of your book are some of the success stories thus far. That is, leaders when it comes to climate and energy, uh, who are the kind of leaders that you are talking about and, have, and who have made a difference in, in their particular part of the world. Um, share with our listeners uh, a, a couple of the uh, maybe most vivid and exciting examples of what I'm talking about. Absolutely. So the, the book really showcases a whole bunch, a lot of different leaders doing a lot of different things, connecting climate energy to jobs, health, transportation, housing, and health, and food access, and other things. So among the most, some of the most exciting and inspiring leaders um, was Virginie Prakash, who is one of the leaders of the Sunrise Movement, um, which is the youth movement that has been ad ad advancing the agenda for the Green New Deal, and is really focusing on uh, connecting climate with jobs and this economic justice. And especially for young people right now, they look to the future, um, and it doesn't look so positive, right? And um, I, I myself have two daughters, 19 and 21, and um, you know they're really scared about the future. And that, that's what Farshini Prakash, who's one of the leaders of Sunrise Movement, has really uh, mobilized and youth and collaborated and built coalitions and involves training and there's local hubs all around the country and it's really an impressive um, way to demonstrate this potential of kind of this collective action that so many people um, um, can can embrace. Another, another leader is Jackie Patterson of the NAACP. She heads up their environmental and climate justice program, and she and her team have been doing really important and impactful work um, revealing and working with revealing how fossil fuel interests have been manipulating and co-opting black communities in particular um, to uh, get support for their fossil fuel-based projects um, and, and oftentimes in, in very um, sneaky ways in terms of providing support for those communities, but, but those communities are then being very negatively impacted in terms of health and economics. So um, another leader that I 
uh, emphasize is Jacinda Ardern, who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and this relates to the pandemic. Um, New Zealand is one of the countries that has been the most effective in managing the coronavirus, and and other and other women-owned, women-led countries, including Taiwan, Germany, and Denmark, have similarly been very successful. And one of the the reasons um, that it seems to be that the leadership is demonstrating here is, uh, you know, looking at the evidence and and getting advice from the experts and taking swift, strict action, and then communicating with empathy and compassion why we need to follow these strict protocols, and then connecting that with saying it's not just about the health of you and your family, but it's actually about the collective health of our community or, or of our nation. And when a trusted leader is able to communicate that um, to the people and people trust that information and they understand this collective uh, well-being for themselves, their families, and their community and their country, um, you know, we see very different results. And um, that's another another example um, of of the kind of leadership that I think we need more of. Right, the so-called squad, and uh, uh, your book calls for an expansion of the squad of these kinds of, of of leaders that are making such a difference. Interestingly enough, although your book is very much focused on the present and the future, uh, you take more than one opportunity in the book to uh, evoke the name of Shirley Chisholm, who, of course, famously uh, ran unsuccessfully uh, for the Democratic nomination for president uh, back in 1972, but uh, someone whose legacy uh, is perhaps even more deeply appreciated now than it was when Shirley Chisholm was an active member of our uh, political scene. And... uh, uh, Explain why you like to remember Shirley Chisholm and why uh, she is an inspiration for you and others uh, in this particular battle and and, and, and issue. Absolutely. So um, the first black woman to run for president in 1972, she uh, remains an inspiration to so many people. Um, and, you know, in some ways we've come a long way since 1972, and in other ways um, not so much, right? And, and um, but she uh, prioritized, um, you know, what people need as the people's first approach um, at that time. And, and, and she also had a slogan in her um, campaign, unbought and unbossed. Um, so, you know, very much acknowledging how, the power of money and, um, and the, the importance of being independent from that. So you mentioned the squad as the, you know, the four uh, junior congresswomen who have come on the stage just the past a couple of years and really changed the discourse, the, the national discourse in, in many ways, um, not just with uh, climate and energy and AOC's leadership on the Green New Deal, but also um, Ayanna Presley, um, who is my congresswoman um, here in Massachusetts. She um, has connected transportation equity issues um, with climate and energy and also um, Ilhan Omar in Minnesota has been uh, a strong advocate for the housing connections and the need to invest in public housing. We have a housing insecurity crisis in this country uh, without a plan to to deal with it. And now with the pandemic, 
um, as, as many of us know, the, um, you know, evictions and homelessness is, is um, growing um, in very uh, scary and dangerous ways uh, without, without a, a real strategy there. So what's happening is we're, we're seeing right now in this period of unprecedented um, disruption um, all, all of these problems coming together. And I think one of the things that we also need to acknowledge is that part of the reason we have all these problems coming together at this time is because we've had leadership that literally has been denying that we have a climate crisis, denying that we have an economic injustice and economic crisis, denying that we even have a health crisis. And, uh, and that the pandemic is even that bad. Um, and then also denying that we have structural racism and um, a, a racial justice crisis in this country. Um, so when you deny, denial is a strategy to keep things the same, right? If you tell people, no, these aren't problems that you need to worry about, just keep doing what you're doing, um, you know, we've gotten to the point right now where that denial um, isn't working because it's, it's right in front of us um, and we can see that uh, the realities of, of all of these issues are, are, are very clear. Right. This is prompting a, 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 a question I wasn't going to ask you, but I think I do want to ask it. Uh, th- there is, of course, those who flat out you know, deny the severity of a problem or so on. And then there are others who, in a sense, deny the problem in a, in a different way and uh, in a way that kind of perhaps diverts our attention. And it brings to mind an interesting story, a personal story you tell in the preface about you and your then husband towards the end of your 19-year marriage. Uh, you asked your husband, yeah. point blank, you say, my soon-to-be ex-husband, whether he considered himself to be a feminist. Uh in much the same way that someone might ask somebody, uh, do black lives matter? Explain to our listeners what his answer was and, uh, and what that answer says and uh, why that answer, why this story um, is, is relevant to some of the concerns you raise in this book. Yeah, thank you for, for asking that. He, when I asked if he, he considered himself a feminist, he said he considered himself a humanist. Uh, not a feminist, and and as you mentioned, you know that's quite similar to people who, who respond to the movement for Black Lives and say all lives matter, not just Black lives. And the 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 reason that is a dis- disappointing answer is because the reason we have a, a feminist lens and the reason people are standing up for the movement for Black Lives is because an acknowledgement of the structural um, oppression that both women and uh, black Americans in particular have been experiencing for so long. So when you when somebody um, equates and says all all of us matter, which is of course true, everybody does matter, but it's diminishing and and uh, not respecting this the challenges and the and the historical uh, oppression and the systems of that have created the inequities that are are very clear so it's a dismissive uh, response um, that fails to recognize and acknowledge um, the the challenges so um, 
I think that is, it comes back to my point that we all need to embrace an anti-racist feminist uh, set of principles and perspective, regardless of who we are, where we're coming from, if we, as we move toward a more equitable and just society. We all need to acknowledge that it hasn't been a uh, level playing field in any way, shape, or form, and that we, um, we need to prioritize and acknowledge um, the loss of, uh, for, for so long of, of opportunities for so many people. The book, again, is Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy, published by Island Press, the author uh, Jenny C. Stevens. Professor Stevens, I appreciate you joining me today on the morning show uh, to talk about your very interesting book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. By the way, the author, uh, Jenny C. Stevens, wanted me to mention that all author proceeds from the book are being donated to the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program.